Thank you, James. I don't know if anybody else needed that last song or not besides me. But thank you, worship team, for leading us in that. I pray you'll uh, take your copy of God's Word and open with me. If you have a hardback version like I've got, or if you have a smartphone, something like that, click to 1 Samuel 24. 1 Samuel 24, as we are continuing our series called Looking for a King, as we are journeying through the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. This chapter has several points of application in it. If you've read it, you've noticed that. And so I've been praying as I've been studying to prepare for this message that God would kind of zero me in on one of those main points of application. So we're not here for two hours trying to discuss all of the points of application. And so I'll highlight some of the minor points of application while zeroing in on what I believe the text to speak to us about the major point of application that you find in 1 Samuel chapter 24. Now, if I were to ask you, and really I'm going to ask you, but if I were to ask you, and you don't have to answer out loud, it's kind of a rhetorical question, just think about it to yourself. What do you think is the greatest victory that David ever won? You would probably say, the majority of you would probably say, if not all of you would probably say, well, Derek, come on, that's easy. Tony defeated the giant Goliath. Now, I'm not doubting you. That's your answer to that question. I'm not saying you're wrong. But in studying this, test, this text um, afresh and anew again in preparation for this message, I want you to think about maybe this chapter being David's greatest victory. Today we're going to look at what I believe to be David's finest hour. I believe this chapter in 1 Samuel records David's greatest victory. And it's not a giant that he's going to be facing on the outside. This is a giant that David's going to be facing on the inside. There was something far more powerful than the giant Goliath that David was dealing with. And as we look at this text, I want to talk to you a little bit about this, this morning about revenge. Now, I know some of you are probably thinking, yes, give me five points on how best to take revenge out on somebody. That's not the purpose of this message. That's not the direction. That's not one of the points of application that we're dealing with here in the text. David's going to deal with this giant called revenge. Now, we can all identify with revenge. It comes natural to us. It's something as natural as breathing air in and breathing air out. Our human normal reaction is to seek retaliation and to seek revenge when somebody does us wrong, says something wrong about us, we hear they're out to get us or whatever. Somebody does you wrong, you're gonna set out to do them wrong. Somebody hits you, you hit them back. Somebody messes with you, you're gonna mess with them. Even the greatest king who ever lived, the guy we're going to look at this morning, David, wasn't immune to the temptation of revenge. And as you and I look at this chapter this morning, we often find ourselves in the same place that David found himself. Someone will wrong us, they'll do something against us, we will be hurt and we will be offended by their actions. Then somewhere down the road, 
the opportunity will present itself for us to get even with them. And what we do in that moment defines us. What we do when the opportunity for us to get revenge presents itself, it will reveal the true nature of our heart. And I believe David here in this text gives some insight into what to do during those times of our lives when we've been hurt by other people and maybe we want to get revenge. As we come to chapter 24, David is a fugitive. He's on the run from this guy named King Saul. How long has David been running? For about 10 years now, David has been the victim of Saul's hatred. David has become public enemy number one of King Saul. Saul has but one goal in his life, and that is to get rid of, King, of David once and for all. You see, Saul is a very prideful egomaniac who gets insanely jealous over all the attention that David's receiving. So in a jealous rage, Saul gets his army together. He's tried throwing his spear at him a couple times. He's tried to hire hitmen to go after David. But now here, Saul gets his army together and he decides to take matters into his own hands and he goes after David. Seek and destroy. That's Saul's mission. Let's look in chapter 24, verse 1. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. And we'll stop there for just a moment. So Saul finds out that David is in the desert, or your translation may say the wilderness of En Gedi. He thinks he's got David right where he wants him, that there's no way that David can escape from this area. So Saul quickly gathers together 3,000 of his chosen men to seek out David and his merry men. Now get the picture. David's small band of distressed and worn out men are being pursued by Saul's large group of chosen warriors, the best in the land. The odds are stacked against David. So our story this morning, as we just read, takes place in a cave. David's in a cave running from this madman named Saul. And while David is in this cave, he is presented with an opportunity that many people would have died for. He's presented with the opportunity to exact revenge on his greatest enemy. So David has an enemy in his life. Without answering out loud, do you have an enemy in your life? Is there somebody who's just out to get you? Now I know it may come as a surprise to some of you, but the truth is, not everybody's going to like you. We just have to come to grips with that. And you'll wonder why that is, as sweet and as lovable as you are. But you're going to find out in life, if you haven't already, that not everybody along the way is going to like you. And as you go through life, for whatever reasons, you're going to encounter people who are not going to be your friends, they're going to be your enemies. 
You're going to encounter people in your life who are, seek, who are out to seek to do you harm. And the question is, how do you respond to that? How do you respond when you have an enemy? How is David going to respond to his situation? Well, the story begins with an embarrassingly, embarrassingly funny scene. Look in verse 3. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. So David and his men are hiding in this cave, and Saul goes into this very cave to relieve himself. Now, there's really no good way to put this, church. I mean... When you go to a restroom, you know why you're going to that restroom. And you've only got one of two choices. It's curtain number one or curtain number two. Well, Saul's behind curtain number two. And you would say, how do you know that? Well, there is no way that David could have pulled off what David's about to pull off if Saul was behind curtain number one. Okay, we got that out of the way. So Saul is looking for David when the call of nature comes to King Saul and not even a king can ignore the call of nature when the phone is ringing. And so the king has to go into this cave, the Bible says, to relieve himself. So he picks a private place in order to do his private business. And that's why he goes in there. And Saul is in the most vulnerable position that Saul can be in. And while he's in this cave doing his business, Saul doesn't realize that David's in the next stall right next to him. And here's David's chance. Here's the man who's been on his tail for 10 years wanting to kill him. If the situation was reversed, there's no question what Saul would do. In fact, David's men know what to do. Look in verse 4. The men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. So David's men see this is a great opportunity to solve the problem, to get rid of the enemy once and for all. They believe that God has given David this opportunity to finally do away with Saul. Let me just kind of translate this for you. David, this is your chance. I mean, look what God has done for you. He has brought Saul right into your hands. All of the running, all of the hiding, all of the persecution can be over. All you got to do, David, is just take matters into your own hands. Kill this guy. Let's be done with it. Take the opportunity. Rid your life of Saul once and for all. David, there's no doubt that God is in this. He said he would deliver your enemy into your hands if circumstances ever pointed to God's will. Here it is. Here's your chance. Now you can do to Saul what you really want to do to Saul. Now church, if you want to test the carnality of a person, just ask them what you should do when your enemy is vulnerable. Unless they are intimately following Jesus, they will tell you to strike every single Time. That's what David's men do here in the text. David, 
God has delivered Saul into your hands. Here's a sword. Kill him. What do you do, church, when you have the opportunity? What do you do when the opportunity presents itself to finally deal with someone who's out to do you harm? Don't get the idea that every time there is an opportunity that it's from God. Hear me, don't ever decide that the will of God is on the basis of outward circumstances. If you'd like to take notes, you can fill in some blanks now. Just because the circumstances make it possible for me to do a certain thing doesn't mean it's God's direct leading for me to do it. I mean, Saul's in a vulnerable position. And David's men are like, David, this is definitely God's will. Seriously, David, stuff like this just doesn't happen. How could anybody not believe that there's a God? Jehovah Jireh. Look what he's done. There's an important lesson for all of us who are in this room and those of us who are watching online here this morning. It is very easy to confuse our desires with God's will. It is very easy to confuse circumstances with the will of God. People will say things to me all the time, and they might have said things to you like this. Pastor, I know that this decision is God's will. It just feels right. And because I want this, because this feels so enjoyable, then I'll find a way to make it seem right. And when circumstances line up just good enough, we fool ourselves into thinking that God's will must be at work. And we've got to come to grips with this fact. Neither my desires nor my circumstances are good guides to the will of God. Now that's not to say that those things can't be used by God. But both of those things, desires and circumstances, are so deceptive that we would do better to evaluate our desires and evaluate our circumstances by a more fixed measure than those two things, and that is the Word of God. The Word of God is the only reliable guide to the will of God. In fact, if you want to know the will of God, then just read the Word of God because the Word of God is the will of God. Your passions, your circumstances can really lead you astray and they can make you justify some things in your life that really just aren't right. We need to know the Word of God and we need to let the Word of God rule our passions. We need to let the Word of God interpret our circumstances. So David has an opportunity to do Saul harm. He's got an opportunity to get revenge. And he finds himself in kind of a conflicting situation. His desires and circumstances are maybe pushing him to kill Saul, but yet at the same time, God's Spirit is pushing him to choose another way. His, his men have a front row seat, and they can't wait to see David get to kill Saul and see Saul get exactly what Saul deserves. And so what will David do? You kind of just fully expect to see David take a sword and put it right through Saul's backside. But he doesn't. 
Instead, he does this. Look in verse 4. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And I can imagine the soldiers of David can't believe what they're seeing. I mean, who would have blamed David if he would have taken his sword and just killed Saul for all Saul that had done to him? And David could have just justified it. I mean, we look at this and say, well, it makes sense to me. It just seems justifiable to take Saul's life. And when we are tempted to take matters into our own hands and do what we want to do, there's always a way to justify it, isn't there? Well, you don't know what all they've been doing to me. You don't know what all they've been saying about me. But David doesn't do that. Instead of taking Saul's life, he takes a corner of Saul's robe. And so why doesn't he kill Saul? Saul deserved it. He had it coming to him. And nobody who really knew the, the real story behind all this would have blamed David. And yet David simply just goes up and cuts off a corner of Saul's robe. You see, David knew that taking matters into his own hands would not be pleasing to the Lord. David knew that, that matters like the hurts of life, and getting revenge, are matters that are best left in the hands of God. David knew that he didn't have the right to play judge and jury in the life of Saul. Do you ever stop to consider the fact that when you take matters into your own hands and you try to get even with somebody else, that you're actually taking the place of God? When you set yourself up as another person's judge and jury and you determine their punishment, you've overstepped your boundaries. Even if you can't respect that person because of how they act, maybe because of what they've done to you, you should at least recognize the fact that that person will have to answer to God and not to you. So David made the decision that he wouldn't lower himself to the same level of Saul. And verse 5 says this, Afterward, after he cut off the corner of his robe, David was conscious stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. David feels guilty about what he's done. The question is why? What's the big deal? So Saul's hymn wasn't level anymore. Who cares? Who cares about a small part of a robe? That's the way we rationalize it, isn't it? It wasn't that big of a deal. It was just a small piece, but there's no small step on the road to revenge and retaliation. Even a small step in that direction is the wrong step. And David can't believe that he'd allowed himself to do what he did. And that says a lot about this guy named David. In fact, you find out how committed you are to God by how even the little things trouble you. When you get to the point that even little things trouble you, when your heart is tender enough to God that even the little things bother you, you're, you know you're getting close to being who God wants you to be and being where God wants you to be. You see, when you really want to walk with God, you get bothered even by the little things. No matter how bad Saul has treated David, David has no business doing that to Saul. To cut off a corner of the king's robe was a blatant act of disrespect to the king. 
And David was bothered because he'd allowed his anger and his bitterness to gain control over him, even for just a moment. David had such a, a desire to honor God with his life that he felt remorse. His heart was conscience-stricken because he allowed himself to lead him to do something he knew wasn't right, no matter what everybody else thought and no matter what everybody else was saying. In fact, here's what he said to those same men who told David what he needed to do. In verse 6, David says, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. And with these words, David rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. David knew it was against God's law to kill the king. That's something that God made plain from the very, very beginning. You don't dishonor or disrespect the king, much less murder the king. And when you're facing a choice of action in your life in any situation, you can always know what to do by asking one simple question. And here it is. What's the right thing to do? Even though Saul is wrong, David is saying, this is God's appointed king. These are God's appointed circumstances. And it is not for me to take matters into my own hands. I can't achieve the purposes of God by breaking the commands of God. It is an impossibility. And here's where we feel the tension. This is where we get tempted to rationalize. Because killing Saul would have solved so many of David's problems. Had Saul been in the wrong? Yes. Was it David's job to make it right? No. That was God's job. You see, David's men were looking at their options. They were weighing the pros and cons. They were making their lists. They were looking at the circumstances. They were following their instincts, but they weren't looking about one thing, and that was, what's the right thing to do? And what set David apart from his men was simply this. And if you haven't written anything down yet, this would be a good time to write something down. David understood that what's right isn't what I think is right at the moment or what I feel is right at the moment. What's right is what God says is right at the moment. I don't care how great the opportunity is. If you have to either violate your conscience or violate God's Word, it's always the wrong opportunity. So Saul finishes up his business goes out of the cave, goes on a little ways, and we read in verse 8, Then David went out of the cave and called to Saul, My lord the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down, bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. David does the unthinkable. This is his enemy, remember. At first it was Saul who was in the most vulnerable position. And now David voluntarily puts himself in an even more vulnerable position. David lays down. He lays flat out, face to the ground, putting his life on the line. Saul could now do to David what David wouldn't do to Saul. And we read in verse 9. He said to Saul, 
Why do you listen when men say, David is bent of harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivers you and delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lift my hands against my master because he is the Lord's anointed. David saying, Saul, you don't have the facts straight. I'm not trying to kill you. I'm not trying to take over your position as king. People are telling you lies about me. Why are you listening to them? Let me prove it. If I was going to kill you, I would have done it back there in the cave. But I didn't. And then after the event has passed and Saul has left the cave and David has an opportunity to call Saul out and rebuke Saul for what he was doing and to highlight the different ways that David handled the situation, here's what he says in verse 11. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off a corner of your robe but did not kill you. Now understand and recognize that I am not guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you but you are hunting me down to take my life. Church, 1 Samuel is all about contrasts. The contrast between Saul, the king after man's own heart, and David, the king after God's own heart. It's an incredible contrast. David says, Saul, here's how you treat me. You hunt my life down to take it. You're trying to murder me. And I had the opportunity to murder you, and I didn't take it. Do you see the contrast, Saul? Do you see the difference between the way you treat me and the way that I treat you? Look, if you're a follower of Jesus, God's people have been called to live in contrast. There has to be a difference between the way fleshly people, earthly people, worldly people, the way we want to do things and the way that God has called us to do things. There's supposed to be a difference. But if David was to do to Saul exactly what Saul was doing to him, let me ask you, what difference would there be? That's the question. If we handle our problems the same way the world handles their problems, We're living no differently than they are, are we? Jesus talks about that in one of His greatest sermons ever preached. Jesus says, you love the people that love you? Big deal. Everybody does that. You're nice to people who are nice to you? Big deal. Everybody does that. You have to be different. In what way, Jesus? Here's how you're to be different. That you love your enemies. Instead of treating your enemies the way everybody else treats their enemies, you treat your enemies differently. You deal with evil differently. You deal with people differently. You deal with people that are even out to get you and that are saying nasty, mean, and ugly things about you. You deal with them differently. Verse 12 goes on to say, May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Do you see what David's saying there in that last statement? 
From evildoers come evil deeds. Evil people do evil things. And David is saying, if I was to do to you, Saul, what you're trying to do to me, then I would be just as evil as you. I would be just as wicked as you. And listen, church, doing evil is evil. No matter how justified you feel while doing it, it's still evil. If you use evil to stop evil, then guess what it is? Evil. From evildoers come evil deeds. And David says, Saul, that's, not, that's why I'm not going to do that. You're doing what you're doing to me because your heart isn't right. But I'm not going to do this to you. I'm not going to stoop to your level. The end does not justify the means. Or as my mama used to say, two wrongs do not make a right. So God's people have always been called to be different, to respond differently, to deal with problems differently, to deal with evil differently, to deal with our enemies differently. David lives out in this moment what Jesus calls his people to live out in every moment, that we do not stoop to their level, that we do not fight evil with evil. Verse 14, against whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. Now I want to be clear here. David's not being quiet about Saul's sin. He's not brushing it to the side or sweeping it under the rug. In fact, he's calling it out. He's highlighting it. He's saying, Saul, this is wrong. You're pursuing me when I'm no threat to you. I'm no threat to your rule. I'm no threat to your life. I'm no threat to your family. I'm nobody. And yet you're hunting me like I'm your enemy. That's wrong. And Saul, listen, you're wrong for doing it. David is highlighting and calling out and rebuking and condemning Saul's behavior. But here's the catch. He's got the moral high ground to be able to do so because he refuses to stoop to Saul's level. If he were to do to Saul exactly what Saul was trying to do to him, then on what ground would David be able to say, this is wrong? He has the moral high ground to say this is wrong because he's not willing to do what Saul is willing to do. Look, church, our job isn't to get even with somebody who does us wrong. Our job is to stay ahead of them. And even Saul realized that's what David did when he said in verse 16. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. Now look, and you guys know what I'm about to share with you. This is nothing new, but there are three roads you can take in the way you treat other people. Number one, you can take the low road. You can return evil for good. 
Number two, you can take the middle road. You can return evil for evil. Or number three, you can take the high road. You return good for evil. And isn't that last one what Jesus calls His followers to do? Isn't that what Jesus calls for His followers to live out? Is to repay evil with good? But that's hard, isn't it? Come on, let's be real. That's hard. Nobody does that. That's why this story is so shocking. Saul is shocked. David's men are shocked. We're probably even shocked because nobody does this. Nobody who has the opportunity to end their pain and suffering and to take vengeance on their enemy lets the opportunity go. Nobody does that. Except God's people. We are called to do that. And Saul recognizes that. Saul recognizes that David has paid him good for evil. And that's what Jesus has called us to do. He has called us to retaliate. Sure He has. But we retaliate with love toward our enemies. I want you to hear this next statement. Someone may choose to be my enemy, but I don't have to choose to be their enemy. David was Saul's enemy, but Saul was not David's enemy. Now here's Saul still talking and we're almost done. I'm going to read verses 18 and 19 and then 20 through 22. Look with me. Saul said, you have just now told me of the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him go away unharmed? Again, Saul recognizes nobody does that. Nobody lets their enemy go. He continues in verse 20, May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established into your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So David gave his oath to King Saul. Stay tuned for 2 Samuel. Then Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. This is what we want to happen. What we want to happen with us being kind to those who are mean is that we break the cycle. And somebody has to break the cycle. When there is hate for hate and hurt for hurt and pain for pain, everyone continues to retaliate with more of the same and we fight fire with fire. But somebody has to step in and break the cycle. Somebody has to step in and say, no more of this. I'm not going to retaliate with the same thing you've given to me. I'm going to retaliate with kindness. I'm going to retaliate with love. And our hope is, or a hope is, that they're going to recognize that as Saul does here in the text and say, you know what? You're right. I've been wrong. And I need to change my heart. But it doesn't always end up that way, does it? In fact, even in Saul and David's situation, unfortunately, this isn't the end of the story. So let me share with you three quick things in closing to remember when you're being mistreated. Number one, expect to be mistreated. 
The same nature that beat in the heart of Saul beats in the heart of every single person, including you and including me. People will mistreat you, hurt you, cause you pain, anger you, and invoke emotions in you that you may never thought you were capable of having. So expect to be mistreated. Number two, anticipate feelings of revenge. I'm not saying retaliate. I'm not saying seek revenge. I'm saying anticipate those feelings of revenge because you can be sure that they will come. When someone hurts you, or they do something to you that you believe is wrong, the natural feeling is to want to get even. Our human nature cries out for retaliation and revenge. As one person said, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I just want to be about the Lord's work. Handling mistreatment in a godly way doesn't come naturally. It comes supernaturally. That's why Jesus' instructions to do unto others as you would have them do unto you, not as they do to you, is revolutionary. Rare is the person who will not retaliate or at least not want to. You're going to need to deal with the desire or the feeling to retaliate and get even. Those feelings will be there. But the mature, spirit-led follower of Jesus doesn't act on feelings. They act on what they know is right and what is wrong. And number three, refuse to fight in the flesh. That's why David came out on top. His men said to him, David, go get him. And it took all of David's integrity, all of David's spiritual maturity, not to take a sword and to plunge it right into Saul. But David would not give in to those feelings that made him want to retaliate. David was spirit-led, so he refused to fight mistreatment with retaliation and revenge. This is why I say, I don't think David ever won a greater victory than he won this day in the cave. It was a victory over self and therefore a victory over sin. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this example that we have in your word of how to respond properly to our enemies. Our flesh oftentimes overrides the Spirit. And we often respond in the wrong manner to those who are against us. And I am so grateful, though, that you have given us your Holy Spirit inside who gives us the supernatural strength, the supernatural self-control to be able to respond with love toward those who are showing us hate. Father, help us in these very difficult times when people are against us 
Help us to remember how Jesus responded when people were against him. Help us to be like him. So that people can see that we are different. And that how great of a God we serve. In the name of Jesus, we pray.